0: Tell them the first thing that comes to your mind when I say, what is the meaning of life? I know that's a tricky question. I actually am not bothered about your, well I am bothered, but um, I'm not bothered about your perspective, but I'd love to know what you think, the people around you, perhaps people who don't necessarily come to church, people you work with in your family, your neighbourhood, your community, if you were to ask them the question, so what's life all about? What really is the meaning of life? What would be just the first couple of things that come out of their mouth, what would they say? Just turn to the person next to you and chat about you know, that. Just for a second, what, what kind of things do you hear from your friends and family about what people think is the meaning of life? What, if you don't follow Jesus or believe in God, what is life all about? Just quick, quick fire answers there. So what have we got? Somebody shout some things out to me. What is the meaning of life for, some, for most people, for some people, what is it about? Shout something out love good one anybody else thank you happiness that's the one i was looking for next one family good say again 42 the answer is 42 yeah you have to be of a certain age and of a certain having read a certain book to get that but yes i thought that would come up too. (laughs) anything else Success. Good, thank you. That's really helpful. We'll come back to that. Um, Last week we uh, started a mini-series, last week and this week, on the book of Job uh, called How to Suffer. And um, last week I did quite a long exposition of Job. We went through the story, um, and I'm not planning to go through that again. This morning I'm going to do a brief recap. Um, in the first few minutes. So if you didn't hear the talk last week, it's available online for you. Um, But in in essence, Job is um, a a story in the Bible of a successful man. In fact, hang on, we said this about Job, that Job is a mystery that satisfies and nourishes something. It's a little bit like spinach. And uh, reading Job and trying to understand it it can feel a bit like eating and trying to digest spinach. You know it's good for you, but it's pretty hard work doing it. Job, um, if you remember or if you've ever read this story, is a successful man who loves God, is happy and rich, but undergoes a devastating set of tragedies and basically loses everything, everything apart from his own life. And most of this book that we read in the Old Testament is written in poetic form as a dialogue between Job and his friends as they try and figure out just why this has happened to Job, why these horrendous things have happened to Job. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to, there's a Bible project um, summary and that sheet's available online too and we've made that available through our last couple of e-presses and blogs and things. And so, what the summary shows you is that there's kind of a couple of. This part here in Job 1 and 2 is a kind of prologue where the main sort of beginning part of the story happens. This bit in the middle from chapter 3 to 37 is. Um, is a long, 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 long discussion and dialogue uh, between Job and his friends on why this has happened to Job. This part here from 38 is when God starts to speak, and then there's an epilogue um, there. So you can check that out for yourselves, and I'm just going to briefly jump through that again, just draw out two or three points that I didn't really land on last week. um, And then I want to... Um, see where that takes us next and talk about the wider issue of how we deal with pain and suffering um, in our world how we explain it how we embrace it how we understand it and so in the prologue of Job this curtain of the universe is pulled back and we witness this conversation between God and his enemy Satan and Satan accuses God of being manipulative he says you know that Job he only worships you because you bless him He only loves you because you have been good to him. If you were to remove all those blessings, I feel sure, Satan says to God, challenges God, that Job would not bless you. His heart towards you would change. And so accepting the challenge and knowing that Job was an upright and a righteous man, God actually says, okay. And although God doesn't actually strike Job himself, and the Bible makes that very clear, he does seem to lift his hand of protection off Job. And allow him to strike Job and to, to, um, to impact, impact his life. And in fact, God says to Satan, you can destroy everything that Job has, but not the man himself. And so in this series of tragedies that we read about in chapter 1, Job loses his wealth and his livestock and his possessions and his family. And all his children and all his household are completely wiped out. And he's left with nothing Except his own life. And if you think I'm going through this quickly, that's because I am. So I'm sorry if you missed it last week. You can jump back and get the detail on this um, on, online from last week. But Job's initial response, as we said last week, it was captured in this iconic line where he says at the end of chapter one, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as we said last week, that's actually a remarkable response. And yet it's also poor theology on Job's behalf. <laughs> And Job doesn't know this because he hasn't witnessed the prologue that we've witnessed. He doesn't know that it wasn't God who took his family away. God, as far as Job's concerned, he thinks God took his family away and he still turns around and says, well, even if he did, blessed be his name, which is an incredible response. And we see what Job doesn't. We see, uh, we see this poor theology, you know, and both Job and his friends believe that what God was doing was that God did this. And so they... They can't fathom the fact that God didn't do this. That's not in their worldview. So then they have to try and figure out reasons why and what's going on here. And so um, there's a whole bunch of arguments that they have. And I didn't show you this last week, but one way of describing or depicting these arguments that scholars talk about is this. It's a triangle of tensions. And so you have these three ideas, and they work in equilibrium. They're all in balance. Okay? And they're all in balance at the start of this story. So the number one is that God is just. God is just in character and he rules the world according to justice. The second part is that this principle of retribution, which is the worldview that they were looking through, which says, if you're good, you will receive good things and if you're bad, you will receive bad things. As I quoted Chance the Rapper last week, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. This was accepted wisdom at the time of Job. That is the way the world worked. God is just. And the world works on this cause and effect principle. And if you do good things, good things will happen. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen. And then the third part of this uh, balance triangle is Job's righteousness. Because Job was a righteous man. He was godly and upright and blameless. And it says at the start of chapter 1 that he he, he offered burnt offerings every day. He prayed every day to God. And so as long as Job is righteous and does the right things and praises God, he still continues to get blessed by God and everything works fine. And this triangle remains in equilibrium. That's how it is at the start of the book until Job starts suffering. And as soon as Job starts suffering, one of the corners of this triangle has to give. One of them has to be given up because it doesn't work anymore. And that's what the debates in chapter 3 to 37 are all about. They're all about defending their corner Of the triangle, so Job's friends start to argue that this retribution principle—it will, this must be true. This is our worldview, they say, and therefore, if the retribution principle is true and God is just as we think He is, then they conclude that it must be Job that's in the wrong. And they say the problem is Job that you have done something wrong, you know. And their sort of philosophy is that you can read about in chapter four up there. Basically, you reap what you sow. You know, if you do good, do good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. The only reason that you must be suffering, Job, is that you have done some things wrong. It is your fault. Fess up. What have you done? What have you done, Job? What have you been doing? And Job says, No, no, no. I, I, I'm righteous. It's not that. The world doesn't work that way. They say God is just, and you're getting punished because you've done something wrong. So in their minds, it's that corner that's collapsed. Okay, and that makes Job really mad because he knows that he's righteous and the story never denies this. So we do assume that it's true, that Job didn't do anything wrong particularly. And Job basically tells his friends, well I used to think like you guys, I used to think this triangle was perfect. But now that I'm suffering, I don't see the world this way anymore, something's got to give. And so he argues, it comes from the standpoint that he is absolutely righteous And then he starts to say, well, maybe the world doesn't work in this way. Maybe this principle of retribution doesn't work. Maybe it's something different. But that so seriously um, undermines his worldview that he can't go there. And so the only way that Job makes sense of this is to go somewhere where maybe we've been in the past, which is to say, well, okay, then the only other way to understand this is that God must have changed. Or God must not be just, and that's those are the things that Job starts to accuse God of. He says, you know, the world has to be because I'm righteous, and the world has to operate like this with this retribution principle. It must be that God is unjust. And he, he, this is Job talking about God accusing God. He says he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, God, this is blindfolds its judges. If not he, then who is it? And Job's in despair and he's crying out and he's challenging God. He's not challenging the existence of God. He's not denying that God exists, but he is questioning God's character and demanding answers. And God seems very silent for a very long time. It's a tricky book to understand. And it's a tricky book, you know, not not helped either by the fact that sometimes you read things in Job and you think, oh, that sounds right. So here's a famous quote from Job chapter five. It says, blessed is the one the Lord corrects, So, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. And it's a beautiful poetic line expressing something really precious about the nature of how a good father disciplines his children. And that is a major biblical theme. In the Old Testament, it's there in Proverbs and it's picked up in the New Testament, Um, it's there in Hebrews, particularly. There's biblical truth expressed in this line, but confusingly, this is not true of Job's situation. Job is not being disciplined by God. He's not under God's discipline. He's blameless. So we read this beautiful line in Proverbs, and we think, oh, sorry, in in Job, and we think, oh, yeah, at a general principle level, this is true, but that's actually not what's going on in this story. And that's what makes this whole book even. Harder to fathom and to understand. And I showed you this quote last week, but it kind of sums it all up. It says, this, far, this book is too subtle to paint everything in either or terms. And it paints an ambiguous picture of the cosmos, where those who are basically in the wrong sometimes speak right, and those whose hearts are basically right nevertheless speak many untruths. And in the last section of the book, God does eventually speak. And the way that God is depicted here is not this gentle, compassionate, good, good father. Actually, it says the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm. When God shows up, he comes in a hurricane. And in these last four chapters, which are so poetic and so beautiful, God does a number of things. First of all, he shows Job, number one, that he has built a beautiful creation. The world is an incredible place and God built it. Not Job. Who were you, God says? Who were you when I did this? Where were you when I built this world? God says, I built this creation. This is my world, I built it. And the second thing God does is he quite powerfully also shows that he, God, is limiting the chaos. He says, who shut up the sea behind doors when it bursts forth from the womb? God puts boundaries in place, the night, day and the night, the land and the sea. And, you know, the sea particularly is symbolic of chaos, Raging chaos, an evil and dangerous thing. And God's saying, I put limits on the chaos. And as I said last week, when you get into chapters 40 and 41, he talks about these monsters, Behemoth and Leviathan, which are pretty weird. And what they do, they're symbolic chaos monsters. And again, God is reminding Job that I am all about limiting the chaos in the world. There's so much, Job, that goes on behind the scenes of this world that you just don't know about. And so God says, I made it. And I'm limiting it, but the heart of this section is where God reminds Job that not only did I create it, not only am I limiting the cows, but most importantly, I care. God cares about the earth. He cares about the skies. He cares about the animals. He says, do you, do you know, Job, when the mountain goats give birth? You know, Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? And God's sort of saying, you know, I'm, I made this beautiful creation and I care about it I'm watching I'm watching on from a distance do you do you know the details Job because I do and God does this whole thing and over this this sort of builds and the response it has in Job is just he's stunned into silence and he says I can't speak I'm sorry I regret what I said forgive me and in the moment Job is comforted and affirmed and the presence of God is enough for him And he never gets to hear an explanation of why this happened, but he does experience God having pressed through the pain and the torment, the doubt and the questions, Job finds his peace. And at the end of the story, he finds restoration. And you can kind of trace this story. You can trace it by this kind of emotional cycle that Job goes through. So it starts with tragedy. Tragedy strikes and Job's life is all but destroyed. And then it goes to grief and he tore his clothing. It says, I shaved my head, tore my clothing. And then he expresses faith. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that turns into despair where Job says, I'm miserable and I wish I was never born. And then that turns into doubt. Job says, God, I don't think you're good. I think you're amoral. I think you're immoral. You're like a lion just ready to grab its prey. And then that turns into anger, where Job says, God, how could you do this? How could you? And then there's a rebuke from God, like, hey, Job, be quiet and listen to me and just let me ask you some questions. And that turns into repentance, where Job says, I repent, I was wrong. I had totally no idea what I was saying. I've so got this wrong. And then that turns into comfort, where Job says, my eyes have seen you, God, and that's enough. And that turns into healing you know, maybe some of us are somewhere on a cycle like this right now. And if you are, that's really okay. My encouragement is to keep pressing into God and acknowledge the pain and the emotion. Job is affirmed by God for the way he prays. He took his complaint to God. He didn't take it somewhere else, he took it to God. Even the borderline blasphemy that Job expresses doesn't faze God. And at the end of last week, I concluded with these three thoughts there are, no easy pla- there are no easy answers. There's a place for lament and an invitation to trust. And I kind of want to develop this a little bit more this morning because actually the truth is that everyone experiences pain at some point in their lives. I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Princess Bride. It's a brilliant film and there's a great quote where this guy, this robber says, life is pain, highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. It's a fabulous movie, but there is some truth in that line. At some point in our lives, we are all going to face pain or suffering of some kind. No one is immune, no matter how successful or wealthy or educated or smart we might be. Tim Keller writes this, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we've put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering our lives. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. There's a happy quote for Sunday morning, (laughs) so I just leave it there. (laughs) You know, that might be where you're at right now. Or it might not be really you right now. If things are going really well for you, boom, that's wonderful. I don't want to spoil the party. But the truth is we are all going to fall into one of three categories. So either we are in a season of hardship right here and now, whatever that is, might be big, might be small, but something's going on. Or we know someone, hopefully love them, we, we, somebody we love and care for is in a season of hardship right now. Maybe it's a family member or a close friend or a colleague or someone in our life group. I'm sure that somebody around you is up against it right now. Or for the sort of half a dozen of us left in the room that don't know anybody in pain right now, I can promise you that pretty soon, either you or someone you know will experience some kind of hardship in the not-too-distant future. Suffering is inevitable. To be human is to experience pain. And the key question is not whether or not we will suffer. The key question is, how do we suffer well? How do we suffer well? And Job has something to say about this, and it echoes a wider biblical principle. I, yeah, if you can turn your Bibles, if you've got them, or just look for Job chapter 23. I just want to read the first 10 verses from this part in the middle of Job. Um, That's just a summary. That's the last verse there. But Job chapter 23, verse 1 to 10, and it's right in the middle of all this stuff. All this stuff's kicking off, and Job replies. says, and Job replied, even today, my complaint is bitter his hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If I only knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer, how he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him and there I will be delivered forever from my judge. Just an aside, this is Job basically saying, imagining that it was like, it's like a courtroom with God. He's saying, I am innocent. I need to have my day in court. I need to go to God and argue my case, and I'm sure that he will judge me. Right, I hope he will. I'm sure he will. Verse eight, but if I go to the east, Job says he's not there. And if I go to the west, I don't find him. And when he's at work in the north, I don't see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. I can't see God anywhere. Job is saying, and then he gets to verse 10, his affirmation of faith at the end of all this where he says, but he knows the way I take and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. See, in this passage, Job is absolutely going for it with God. He's complaining. He wants his opportunity to state his case. He wants to plead his innocence. If I could only find God, he says, I could go there and I could argue my case and I'm sure that he would find me innocent, but I can't even see him in the middle of this and yet there's this affirmation that well okay but he knows where I am so despite all of this Job hasn't lost sight of the fact that God is there somewhere and he says and when he's tested me I'll come forth as gold so despite his extreme pain and suffering and his railing at God God Job has nevertheless figured out that there's something else going on here and that in this season There's something else that's going to come out of this, some kind of testing. Not testing like an exam with a grade, like a multiple choice. Not that kind of testing. He's talking about like a metallurgist testing or proving of a precious metal. You know how you make gold, you burn it, you heat it up and you heat it up until all the impurities come out. Until what's left is something pure and priceless. That's an idea we read about in loads of other parts of the Bible. For example, Psalm 66 Verse 10, you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Israel here seeing the experiences they've had as a testing, as a refining process, and ultimately that God would bring them out to a place of abundance. One other one, there are loads. In the Bible, Isaiah forty-eight ten. I don't have it, sorry, that's something else. Isaiah 48.10, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Even Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, 49, says, Everyone will be salted with fire. The process of refining gold and other precious metals, as I said, involves heating things up so impurities come out. And that's quite a radical idea. When it's placed up against the prevailing ideas in our culture. And so John Mark Comer goes into this, and i briefly summarize what he said. He describes five different major worldviews and how each one explains suffering. So if you believe in uh, what Hindus believe in, which is a sort of karma idea, which means you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. You know, what goes around comes around, and any hardship that happens is a byproduct of your own bad decisions. Okay, so whatever happens is down to you. If you believe in the Zen, the Buddhist kind of Zen philosophy, then all pain and suffering are the byproduct of desire. This is what Buddhists teach, that the theory, at least in their teachings, is that if you can eliminate desire, if that's even possible, then you can eliminate suffering. And that can be achieved according to Buddha by following the path to enlightenment. And that is a really popular view. It's like, just get rid of all desire, and there won't be any suffering. If you don't need anything or want anything, There won't be any suffering. If you follow perhaps the Islamic way of, of doing things, which is more about fate or destiny, that everything that happens is down to your fate and there's simply nothing you can do about it. Pain or suffering is simply the will of Allah or the will of God. Good or bad, it's God's will. And you do see this idea also in ancient pagan religions and you also see a permutation of this in part of the church. And I'm not going to go into this now Because it's a big subject. There's a whole wing of the church that talk about something called meticulous provision. Suggesting that the way to understand the Bible is that whatever happens, whether it's good or evil, is basically the will of God. And there's nothing you can do about it. Now, if you're interested in that, I suggest that you look here to this fantastic lecture with a guy called Jerry Brashears, which is um, part of the Biblical Literacy Lecture Series. It's it's pretty long, but... um, Fantastic, if you want to jump into that. Um, But just going back to our other one, there's a dualistic. Now, the the proper term for this is, or where this originally comes from is the Zoroastrians, but it's kind of easier to think of it as a Star Wars (laughs) philosophy, really, which is that the world is a cosmic battlefield and there are equal and opposite forces of good and evil, light and dark, and that basically there always needs to be a balance and equilibrium in the forces. And so pain and suffering are the byproduct of a war that's literally going on across the universe. Now, each of these worldviews has a ring of truth, in my opinion, a ring of truth. There's a biblical worldview, which is kind of what we're talking about either side. But the thing that I notice about all of these is that they all accommodate pain and suffering. They all see it as normal, as a normal and necessary part of the human experience. So whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jedi you expect pain to come. It's not a surprise and it's not a shock when hard things happen. In fact, it's a season of hardship in your life. is seen to be a good thing, at least a good thing in development of your character. A little bit like the idea that we were talking about, about testing and refining. But the truth is most of us don't, well, I don't know about you, but most of us don't subscribe to those worldviews. Particularly, most of us have been brought up in and around a Western secular mindset This is probably what we've been taught at school, which is based on the idea of naturalism. That's not naturism, that's something else. Um, Naturalism or humanism or secularism, secularism, which is basically the idea that humans and the world evolved without the help of God. There are many, many people who think that everything around us is a byproduct of chance. It's a glorious accident. There's no creator. There's no meaning or purpose behind the universe. And the problem with that philosophy (laughs) is that it makes no accommodation for suffering or pain. There's no explanation. In this worldview, everything we see and touch and taste and feel is just a complete accident. There's no meaning, there's no purpose behind pain. How do we, in our worldview, accommodate for and understand pain? If you ask most people on the street, hey, what's the meaning of life, like I just did earlier? With you, you'd see, you'd hear something like what what you guys said back: love, family, maybe. I think most people, if you push them, would say the meaning of life is to be happy. Most people, most of our family, most of our friends and colleagues and neighbours would say, "Oh, the point of life is to be happy." If you live across the pond, they sum it up in uh, in the American dream. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's kind of written into the written into the fabric of American society. We don't talk about it like that here, but I'm pretty sure we think of it pretty similarly. And the point, if the point of life is life, liberty, and happiness, then what happens when you get a diagnosis That when they say, I'm so sorry, this cancer is inoperable and you only have a year to live? Or two years at best. Or what happens when someone close to you, really close to you, dies? How are you going to de- deal with that then? My sister's got a friend who has um, children, one of whom is so close to dying now, age 12. It's just tragic. What do you do? There's nothing to say. It doesn't work, this philosophy. There's no explanation. What do you do when you don't have your liberty, when you're put in jail or you're sent as a refugee or even in World War II you're in a concentration camp? Or what about the pursuit of happiness? What happens when your life becomes a string of poor choices and you spend your life living with the after effects of making some really rubbish choices when you were younger. See, this Western worldview that we basically live in is the worst worldview at dealing with pain and suffering. At its best, suffering is an interruption. We say, I'm going to have a year off or a couple of years off my life, the point of my life, until I get through this disease or I get through college, or I get to a better job, not the one I hate at the minute, or until I'm not single anymore and I've found a spouse, or whatever it is. At its best, in our worldview, suffering is an interruption. At its worst, it's insurmountable, insurmountable obstacle. It's permanent and it will never go away. We're stuck with this forever, which means if we're stuck with that kind of suffering forever, we're actually never going to be able to achieve our dream of life and liberty and happiness. Can you see what I'm saying? And in the West, we've done everything to try and limit this and to avoid hardship. You know, we're taught health and safety and we've made incredible technological and medical advances. Our society has done an amazing job of cutting back on death and injustice and pain and racism and poverty and disease. But at some point, pain and suffering still slip through the cracks and we don't know what to do about it. There's a guy called Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish neurologist and psychologist in Vienna. And at the outset of World War II, he was taken by the Nazis to the Auschwitz camp, where his wife and family were immediately put to death in the gas chambers. And he then spent years, the rest of the war, at Auschwitz and in other death camps. And he was one of the few guys to survive the Holocaust. And after the war, he pioneered a brand new form of therapy called logotherapy, meaning, it means, the word logo means meaning, meaning therapy. And it was based on what he discovered at Auschwitz, which was that the men who made it through that horrendous experience were not the strong, tall, tough, or athletic guys. Actually, it was the men who found meaning in their suffering who made it through. The men who found a purpose to living in that hell. I say men because most of the women and children were just kind of killed straight off. But the ones who survived had a reason to live. They found a reason to live. And so Frankel, as a psychologist, you know, was adamant to the day of his death that the point of life is not to be happy; the point of life is to have meaning. He said there are three ways to discover meaning: one, he says, create a work or do something, do a deed, make a contribution, do something. secondly, he said, experience something or encounter someone relationships you know and the third one he said was take an attitude towards unavoidable suffering so his line was it's not what we can expect from life it's what life can expect from us it's not what I can get out of life but what life can get out of me and he said this into the sort of um, western culture he said to the European it's characteristic of the American culture that again and again one is commanded and ordered really to be happy but happiness cannot be pursued it must ensue one must have reason to be happy. Once the reason is found, however, one becomes happy automatically. As we see, a human being is not in, not one in pursuit of happiness, but rather in search of a reason to become happy. Now, Frankel wasn't a follower of Jesus. Best we know, is probably an agnostic Jew, but his teaching is very much in line with what the Bible teaches about suffering. Let's have a look at 1 Peter. In fact, if you've got a Bible, turn to chapter... 1 Peter chapter one and verse three. I've put verse six up there, but I'm gonna read the first bit first. 1 Peter chapter one, verse three. Peter's writing this. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade this inheritance peter says is kept in heaven for you who are through faith who through faith are shielded by god's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time and in this in all of this you greatly rejoice that's a little bit about what we were singing this morning that's a little bit about what we were seeing this morning. And then he comes to this part. He says, In all of this you greatly rejoice because of what Jesus has done for you. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Through him, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him, now you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, over and over again, the writers of the Bible make a point that suffering can do to your character what fire can do to gold. It can change you, and grow us it can mature us it can get the dross out of our lives it can get the unnecessary gunk the stuff that isn't pure it can test us and show us what's really inside it can make us take a long hard look at ourselves and in the end emerge more beautiful and more pure and more valuable than ever before that's what the bible says suffering can do it doesn't have to be meaningless it doesn't have to be purposeless And so just to finish, in summary really, five things that pain and suffering can do in our lives. It can deepen our love for God. You know, C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. You know, when we're in pain, it's like somebody saying, hello, wake up, you need to do something here. God is rarely responsible for the pain in our lives, like I said, but often pain, in whatever way it comes is a wake up call for us that can be used at least by God to get our attention and show that maybe our loves are out of order you see buddha said that the way to uh, deal with suffering was to get rid of all desire you know suffering is a byproduct of desire if you really really want something and you don't get it then you're going to suffer that's what kind of buddha says and buddha's answer to that is so get rid of all the desire and I don't think that's the right answer Augustine actually says the problem is not that we desire but that we desire the wrong things we get them in the wrong order and so you know it isn't a problem that we love our family or our spouse or our job or our money or our home it isn't a problem but it is a problem we love God too little and so if we make anything else other than God our ultimate goal our ultimate top priority in life then we are always going to live in fear Because any of those things could be taken away from us at any moment. You know, if your family or your job or your possessions or your happiness or your health, if all of those things are our top desire, if one of those things is our top desire, we we will live in fear that it will just be taken away from us at any moment. That our life could just go like that. I was reading yesterday about some famous YouTuber who just died in a... Electronic bike, electric motorbike accident. I mean, just random things, just like that. Life is just so precious, as we know. Liberty can be taken away from us. Happiness can go in a phone call. And so, if we make anything other than Jesus our ultimate, then we are going to live in a constant state of anxiety. Am I going to lose it? Am I going to lose it? Am I going to lose it? Am I going to? Is this job going to work out? How long am I going to be single for? Is this thing going to happen? Or, God forbid, we actually face the hardship, we actually go through it, we live with a profound sense of sadness for the rest of our lives. I can't believe this happened. This has ruined my life. It's the end of my world. But on the other side of this, if we make God ultimate, well, Jesus can never be taken away. Jesus can never be taken away from us. And so it's all about loving God. Suffering can be an amazing opportunity to deepen our love for God. Pain and suffering can deepen our character. The testing is not for God, it's for us. You know, I heard this quote once. Christians are like tea bags. You put them in hot water and that's when you find out what's really inside. It's a bit cheesy, but basically. (laughs) You know, the testing part is for us, not for God. It's to see what's actually inside us when things get heated up you know again an amazing opportunity to deepen our character i mean what an amazing opportunity if we want and we want if we want to do the deep work necessary in that moment of suffering and hardship to press into god to grow and mature in areas of character that's going to have a lasting difference in us some of you are right in the middle of i'm just going to use this word crappy situations right now Apologies for my, if Joe was here she'd be scowling at me at this point for using that word but luckily she's not. (laughs) Um, Some of you are in the middle of rubbish situations and and we have a choice to make in this moment. And the choice is do I press into God, do I take a good hard look at my character and see this as a time of growth or am I just going to live with unhappiness for the rest of my life? And that might mean making some really hard decisions. That might mean having some brutally honest conversations. And it will certainly mean pressing into God. But it will deepen our character. The third thing that suffering can do is it can deepen our humility. You see, when we suffer, it reminds us that actually we're not in control. We never really were. You know, there's a sort of, again, our society peddles this lie to us that we can help ourselves and we're the captain of our destiny and we're the product of our... Consumer choices, and yet actually, we, we, you know, we will never understand, just like Job, never understood fully what was going on. We are not in control. God is bigger than all of us. The fourth thing that suffering can do is it can deepen our empathy. You see, going through hardship humbles us in a way in a really good way. And it creates in us an empathy for other people who are going through hardship. We all know what it's like to be having a really hard time and to encounter somebody who has no idea what that's about and who has nothing to say except trite cliches. You know, people who've not yet been through pain and suffering are usually pretty annoying. I remember... um, I remember not... I remember... I, I, I used to just... When I met with people who had had a a deep loss in their their family, I remember thinking, I I just, I don't know what to say. I had nothing to say to you. And for me, all of this changed, completely changed after my dad died, because I realized that there is nothing you can say. And yet, when somebody comes and says, I'm so sorry, I don't know what to say, that's enough. And there was this guy that I knew back in Birmingham, and um, I had taught his, when I was a school teacher, I'd taught his daughter. And his, um, his, he and his wife uh, were there in the community. And um, she tragically died. And I read about it on Facebook, I think. She, she tragically died. She lost her life suddenly and early. And it was a tragedy. And I used to see him walking his dog around Bourneville, where I used to live. And I knew him because I taught his daughter... And once or twice, I just never knew what to say. And I kind of, I kind of avoided it. And, the, and I remember literally the week after my dad died, I remember thinking, oh, okay, I have something to say to this guy now. I know what to do. And I went up to him and said, oh, I heard about your wife and I'm so, so sorry. And I don't know what to say. Um, I've just actually lost my dad as well. And so if you are in a time of hardship, it can help us grow in our own empathy. And lastly, suffering and pain can deepen our joy. Now I know that sounds a bit odd, it sounds like a paradox, but suffering shows us that it shows us what we take for granted and there's a lot by the way that we do take for granted and it shows us that as the things that we love are stripped away and it exposes our depth of entitlement and what happens is we start to celebrate the simple pleasures in life. So one day you'll wake up and you'll think, oh, there's a roof over my head, or what a beautiful sunset, or this is a nice cup of coffee. (laughs) I will never think that because I hate coffee, but (laughs) apparently many people find that a good thing. (laughs) Or a conversation with a really good friend, a sense of deep gratitude for God for something that was in reality there all the time. In our suffering, as we embrace it, we can actually get become joyful. You know, all of the, many of those passages, the <laughs> New Testament passages, whenever they talk about suffering, they all talk about suffering and joy at the same time. In Peter, he talks about that. He talks about the hard times and the testing, and he talks about the celebration and the joy. There is a beautiful juxtaposition in times of trial and pain. And that's part of what lament is about. We talked about that last week. So I'm kind of coming to land here, but my point is that suffering can deepen our love for God and deepen our character and deepen our humility and deepen our empathy and even deepen our joy. Pain and suffering have the potential to catalyze growth and maturity in our life. That's part of what we see in Job. I am so thrilled that we're going to pay for Matt and Chris this morning after this you've heard from Matt last week and Chris this week, because both of them, and particularly Matt, as he shared last Sunday, have been through some really tough times. And yet, what I've really, really been impressed about is how in the middle of hard times, they have made really good choices. Really good choices that help us. And we can can all do that. Many of us are doing that. You know, the fact that you're here... Trying to worship God is a really good choice. I remember when Joe and I experienced a miscarriage. It was a shock. It was a shame. It's, you know, I know many people experience these things. It was their first time for us, and we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We were just really sad, and we actually came home from our holiday a day early, and we went to church and we stood on the front row because we were part of the leadership team of the church and we worshipped God. And some people came to Joe and some of her friends said, "How can you come here? Gosh, you're very brave to come here. You must be feeling awful." And she said, "I am feeling awful, but I can't think of anywhere else I want to go." You know, the choices that we make in the middle of these times are really crucial. They're really crucial. They will help us move through that cycle. The choice to be real with God, the choice to lament and embrace the anger and the pain and the frustration and take it to God and trust that he can hear it and and start to move on and and stay and listen to him. The choice to be brave in that moment and to take courage, the, the choice to... Stay close to God and stay close to friends and stay close to people who are going to help us and support us and press into God. The choice as to whether we get bitter or whether we get better. The choice to press in and keep our eyes on the bigger picture. You know, just like we sang this morning, the choice to dwell on I am who you say I am. We've sung that this morning. It's so powerful. And if you're in the middle of a really tough time, just dwell on that. The choice not to be limited, as Mark shared, by who we say we are, but by who God says we are. If we do that, we will grow in character, and hard times will mean something. And I kind of want to finish with this verse from James, which says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Why don't we stand together? Why don't we just take a moment to reflect and be quiet. And I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Because he is here. So come Holy Spirit. We love you. We need you. Lord, well, I'm gonna pray this. You can echo it if you want to, if you feel you can. I, I, I want to say that I want to, at least in my head, if even if I can't say it in my heart, I want to embrace times of trial and suffering and pain because you will use these for my good. I want to say in the midst of times of difficulty that I want to embrace you God. I want to cling on to you. I want to hold on to your truth and trust that you've got this. Lord help us to see the bigger picture here help us to see what you are doing here and even if our own lives are really hard and if we're facing tough decisions and if we're facing uncomfortable truths help us lord to embrace you in the middle of these times and holy spirit come and meet us in this place and wherever you are and whatever's going on This is a moment to be real with God. And if you're not experiencing a really difficult time, probably somebody you know is. So if, God isn't, if there's nothing particularly that you want to engage with God about here, then maybe just on behalf of somebody else start to engage with God. And just say, Lord, I just want to call you, welcome you into this moment so come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit we pray come Holy Spirit we pray we're just going to wait there's no need to rush the Lord is here We welcome you, we welcome you, we press into you. Thank you for your presence, thank you for your presence. For some of us, all that we need to do really is just make a decision in our heads and our hearts that we are pressing into God in this moment that we're acknowledging what's going on and that we're choosing God and if that's where you are and you'd love to have someone pray for you this morning we would love to pray and even as I look across the room I can see God engaging a number of people just the Holy Spirit is resting on you the Holy Spirit is resting on you And so in that moment, as you're engaging with God and His presence, just allow Him, allow Him to come and speak into the depths of your soul, into the depths of your heart. And Holy Spirit, come and do all the work that you want to do with us here this morning. We want to be people who can grow in character. We want to be people who can bring empathy and joy into difficult situations. We want to be people who can embrace the hard times trust that you're there so if you want to respond to that if you'd like to have someone pray for you we'd love to have you come down the front there's plenty of space and there's plenty of time so if you're particularly if there's something that's resonated with you this morning or you're particularly struggling with something or if you've come with another need this morning and you'd love to just have someone lay a hand on you gently and pray uh, pray God's blessing on you can I invite you to come if you'd love to there's space here you're welcome bless you guys and can I have some church folks to come and pray for these guys as well thank you Matt and Chris why don't you come as well we'd love to start praying for you just praying God's blessing on you this is a safe place folks this is a safe place so bless you for your bravery thank you for being courageous just come into this moment and trust that God has got you let's have one or two other folks come and pray Holy Spirit we thank you for the work that you're doing among us we thank you for these deep moments we thank you for these deep moments and we acknowledge your love and your presence here and we bless you for that we bless you for that we bless you for that We're going to continue to pray for these folks. We're gonna have one or two more folks come and pray with uh, Matt and Chris as well. if you know these guys and you've been part of their story, come and be part of, come and pray with them. It may be that you just want to stay in the Lord's presence as the guys lead us in worship gently. It may be that you just want to sit where you are or stand where you are and just engage with God and that's absolutely fine. If you have come with a need this morning, we would love to be able to pray for you. don't go without us having the opportunity to speak or catch up or pray and if you are ready and if you are done there's coffee and stuff like that available and if you haven't already gone to get your kids please do start heading towards that, so Holy Spirit thank you for the work you're doing among us, we bless you for this, we thank you that you're the God of all comfort we thank you for the work you're doing in our lives and we bless you Holy Spirit for that and we want to partner with you we want to stay in tune with you we want to embrace you and press into you no matter what our circumstances and Lord we want to find meaning and purpose in the difficult times of our lives and we want to grow and be more like you that's our prayer in Jesus name